folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the book of Genesis on the docket today, chapter 30. Where do we see the person and work of Christ in this old ancient Near Eastern text, where, by extension, is our life in him, the life of the church of all times and places. That's been our focus here throughout this study, not just Genesis, uh, but Christianity in Genesis. Where do we see our Lord, and where do we see those living and moving and having their being in him as we go through these texts? Last time, chapter 29, Jacob works for, well, Rachel, but he gets Leah first, and he does another seven years, and he gets Rachel. And then uh, at the end of chapter 29, we start to get this whole business of, okay, we've got two women, and Leah's hated, and then we have the barren womb. We talked about that last time. We're going to pick this up in chapter 30. You probably know where this is going. Jacob is going to have 12 sons. Those make up the 12 tribes of Israel, but these are going to be from different women. So first things first, at at the end of chapter 29, Leah is hated, and the Lord, um opens her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, eventually Rachel will conceive, but, I mean, that's going to come here in chapter 30. The point first is we have this barren woman, the Lord working through miraculous conceptions. Sound familiar? Okay. And uh, by the time you get, so we did the some of the sons last time. We had Reuben, and then we had Simeon. And we have Levi and Judah. Those are the first four we talked about last time. I love, by the way, why we're given, or what we're given about each of these names. Judah, why? Because praising the Lord, Yada in Hebrew, Yuda, Yada is to praise, and uh, and so on. These names mean something. And I love how we're given that because you could just name them and then kind of, well, Go learn Hebrew and figure it out for yourself. But the narrative itself gives you the explanation, which means this is huge. These are named for a particular meaning or significance. And as we get into chapter 30, we're going to get more of this. Okay, so Rachel sees first that she bears Jacob no children. She envies her sister. This is, oh boy, what is this? Um, Sarah and Hagar all over again. You know, this kind of thing in Genesis is not just... um, what drilled in our heads it's it's drilled in our heads so that we know this is the reality the spiritual reality of the church of all times and places we will always have this uh barrenness that relies upon the lord's miraculous intervening we cannot be born again to use the language of john 3 by our own merit or worthiness Um, This is a a barren wasteland by our own flesh, the desires, um, and so on, that we have by original sin. And so we need a miraculous conception. We need the miraculous conception of the Virgin Mary. Um, And we need also this in-gathering. So when you have, oh, Rachel is the favorite one, isn't it? You know, because that's what Jacob, Jacob worked for Rachel. And now she's the one that's barren. She's humbled. 
so that at the proper time she may be exalted. Meanwhile, Leah is hated. Uh, she's exalted now with the children that we talked about at the end of chapter 29, but will in, uh, for all those who go astray, ultimately will be humbled. And, um, and yet at the same time, those who stay faithful from Leah are grafted in, even though she was not picked, right? It was the unchosen that gets grafted in throughout Genesis again and again, this prioritization of the of the unpicked, the unchosen, immediately grafted in, that God may be all in all. We're going to see this again throughout. So Jacob's going to have kids here by four women. We have Rachel and Leah, but then, oh, deja vu, sounds like we have servants as well. So Rachel, starting verse uh, chapter 30 here, Rachel, she bears Jacob no children. She envies her sister Give me children or I shall die. It's all, it sounds also like Jacob and Esau, too. Esau, you know, give me some of that stew or I'm going to die. So, again, you have this, like, brother thing, the sister thing, the paired thing. True church, false church, uh, faithful behavior, unfaithful behavior. These are always paired in the book of Genesis. Jing, Jacob gets mad. Am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb. Again, we're given this reminder that there's a kind of barrenness to the Lord's people that depends entirely on him. I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. That's that, that baptismal birth, that generation, that being born from above is not on me. We are not in the place of God. Then she said, here is my servant, Bilhah, go unto her. She may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So Bilhah, this is just, again, sounds like Hagar and so on. Jacob goes into Bilhah and she conceives. Um, they bear a son. They name him Dan. Dan in Hebrew has something to do with judge. And we have another son. And because of the wrestlings that I've wrestled with my sister, she calls his name Naphtali, which means... Oh, something like uh, wrestling in Hebrew. So there's, again, this consistency of the names. And then what? Leah now takes her servant, Zilpah. Zilpah bears good fortune, blessed. Um, and so we have this name Gad, which again sounds like a Hebrew word for good fortune or, or good things, tidings. Um, Leah then bears... Asher, Ashrei, first word of Psalm 1, happy or blessed. So she says, happy I am. Women will call me happy, so I'm going to name him happy, Asher. As I said earlier, I love all this because this is, I, we, as you know, we're, we're going to get 12 sons. Now, why is it 12 from four different women? We haven't even done all the names yet, I realize, but this is a good point to kind of, what's going on here? Well, on the one hand, you can say the Lord is gracious and merciful, and so he works through even the even the, the lowly, the outcast, the servants, the what maid servants or concubines or whatever, the uh, lesser status, you know. And that's fine, um, but I think we can push this a little bit further, and that is Israel is made up of such as these. On the one hand... Um, the church might be in a pretty good shape. I mean, I guess you could say uh, it'll never be perfect, of course. But you might have those places or pockets or geographical regions or times or places where the church is 
um, fruitful, bearing. Um, Christianity is booming in Africa right now. Might be more on the on the Rachel side of things when she's as she gives birth here in the early part of chapter thirty. There are other times where it's quite barren. You might say, uh, think of the beginning of Samuel. The word of the Lord is rare in those days. There's a there's a kind of barrenness going on. Well, think of Rachel's barrenness right before chapter thirty. And think also, of course, of uh, not Rachel or Leah, but those who have been grafted into our midst. Those who are not Jews, but Gentiles. Those who are not born and raised Missouri Synod Lutherans. That is also the church. That's also, that's Zilpah. That's Bilhah. That's those who were, they're just doing their duty and this blessing has fallen to them. Maybe at a later time in life, and maybe in a rather unexpected or un, in an unusual way, they're they're doing their thing. They're waiting tables. They're cleaning up, and and this is how they've been. They've heard and they've believed, and and praise be to God. The sons of Jacob through these four women. I mean, even the number four is kind of a north, uh, south, east, west thing. In many places of the Bible, it's a global number. It's a kind of all-encompassing number for all those women. Again, we have in Genesis so much of this emphasis on the woman from Eve and following being a, a figure of the church. This is the church. This is the bride, the collective bride of Christ, you might say. This is what the church looks like. Rachel, one facet there, Leah, Zil. Pa, Bilha, these are all, this is the collective lady church. And what comes from that is what? Happiness, Asher, um, judgment, Dan, okay, Gad, good fortune, okay, wrestlings, strugglings, Naphtali, Jacob himself will have a famous wrestling, a, a famous naphtaliing with God him, himself in chapter 32. This is also the church. These are the sons of the church. This is what it looks like. This is what sonship in the church looks like. Wrestlings and judgment and yet happiness all the same and so on. You can just run all these names through and reflect on what it means to be born in the church. All right, carrying on the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel says to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. This is, I mean, the kind of Jacob Esau thing again. There is something in the Jacob Esau narrative that endures into successive generations. The attitudes, the faithfulness and lack thereof. As you move forward in Genesis. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? You're also going to take away my mandrakes, my son's mandrakes. Rachel then says, Then may he lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. The mandrake thing is kind of an odd, it's a it's a plant, it grows in the ground, it, it has been associated with fertility. And is the belief here that you know, this will help this conception business, 
Some have thought that, but we'll have more to say about this in a minute. Jacob comes in. He, o- he obeys. Again, this is sounding like Abe and go into my servant and so on. Leah then says, you must come into me. So he lays with her. God listens to Leah. She has a fifth son. God has given me my wages. So she names him Issachar. And Issachar, again, you get a footnote. Says like It sounds like wages in Hebrew. Okay. Keep that Mandrix thing in mind. I'm going to say more about that when we get to the second half of this chapter. But that's that's an odd little interaction here about these mandrakes in the midst of this first half that deals with these sons, the fertility of these women and the sons of Jacob. Just keep that in mind, this little exchange about the mandrakes. Leah conceives again, bears Jacob a sixth son, and this one's named Zebulun because Zebulun... Um, Sounds like the word for honor. So she says, I've got this good endowment, this good honor. Now my husband will honor me, this kind of thing. And then afterwards, she has this this daughter named Dinah. We don't get an explanation for Dinah. We'll come into, uh, we'll encounter Dinah again later on, but notice there's no explanation for her. So again, this kind of sonship of the church is being emphasized. God then remembers Rachel in due time, in due season. God looks with favor upon Rachel. This is just the life of the church again. Why not right now? Why not in the way that makes sense to me? Why this particular cross on me and not others, even in the same one flock? And yet here at the proper time, Rachel conceives, bears a son, and names him Yosef, Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Now, this is a fascinating remark here. Um, Rachel conceives this son, Joseph, and says, even names him, May I have another son. Ironically, the next son that she'll have will cost her her life. And that's Benjamin. We'll read about that later. But this is the kind she names her son Joseph. So it's it's thick here. She names him something that may the Lord add another. Yasaf is to do again or to do more, to do a second time. She names him something that will kill her, this bearing again. And that in some ways is, I you know, Christian. At Antioch, they were first called Christians. And you are bearing the name of the crucified one. You are confessing the name that is going to bring with you a cruciform image. You're confessing, you're being called something that will involve taking up your cross, your Christian character, in order to follow the Christ. It will it will mortify it will put to death you it will crucify you by means of the cross that will take up it will put to death the old adam it will crucify the flesh and all of its desires in order that a new man would daily arise and live before god in righteousness and purity forever it's a very rich moment this naming of yasof may the lord give me another that will lead to her death. We're going to pick it up here with the second half of chapter 30 after a quick break. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. 
What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 30. We have Jacob's children, his 12 sons, by means of four women. Then we also have this daughter named Dinah. We ended by talking about Joseph. It's a fascinating account. Again, um, this sonship, this is what the church, lady church looks like. This, this is the collective church here, these women talked about that, and then also what sonship in this church looks like. I think that's why you have the 12, I mean, you have, you have the 12 disciples on the New Testament side of things too, of course, right? Yeah, You know, the Peter, James, John, Matthew, all these, okay, so we have we have the 12 uh, on both Testaments, and then in the end times, Revelation, you have the 12 tribes, prophets and apostles, and so on. 12's a big deal, but it's that it's that that twelve facetedness I think that intrigues me quite a bit and is is particularly rich here that we need to consider. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob then says to Laban, "Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go for you know the service that I have given you." This is an interesting thing. There's some sort of contentment here, let's call it, on Jacob's part after these sons and one daughter are born. It's like this is, I mean, why don't we have more talk about, oh, and then there's more strife about conceiving more kids or whatever. It just, it stops with the 12, and then again, Dinah, um, as if that's, there's a contentment there, there's a fullness there. It's like the church has reached a particular point of fullness and it's time to get the necessary independence. Now, of course, you're still going to have to deal with... This is total deja vu for Abe and, what is it, Abimelech. We talked about that earlier, chapter 20, 21. We have this, okay, how are we going to do this? And Isaac also fighting over the wells. There's constantly this ongoing strife between the church and, uh, what, the earthly authorities or the proximity What's around us and how can we live and move and have our being as the as the fullness of the church should in this temporal life? And so it's, it's like Abe and um, Lot separating also in chapter 13. You know, it's too big and we need to 
we need to <laughs> split off and have another congregation or whatever. We have to make do what's best here. And so he says, you know, let me go and I need to take care of my flock. Laban says, if I found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. This sounds a lot like Abimelech. The divination thing's kind of weird because this is something that the Lord forbids later on in the book of Deuteronomy, this consulting of omens or whatever. Um, and so there's not there's not a condoning of that practice. I think maybe you include that to make the point that this is kind of, this is, Laban is sort of the, it's like the Abimelech right now. Laban is the Abimelech, as it were, who's, you know, there it's the Caesar of the time who's, I mean, that, that practice is not favored by the church. And yet here this ruler recognizes that the church comes with some particular blessings. It reminds me of the politician saying what the politicians do in order to appeal to the, the evangelical vote or whatever, you know, the, the, I don't know, sanctity of life or something where they kind of, well, I, yeah, I know the Lord uh, bless, blesses you and, <laughs> You know, how about uh, I get some support from you or can can I be connected to you in some way? So the Laban, Laban confesses that yet again in the book of Gener- Gener- uh, in the book of Genesis that this particular generation is in context is blessed by the Lord's people. Jacob says, hey, I've served you. And he's concerned for the livestock. It's interesting. At first, he says wives and children. But then his concern ultimately, and for the rest of this chapter, will be about the li- the flock. I love that. The shepherding of the sheep. It's so pastoral. Jacob turns all the attention to the flock because this is about the flock of all times and places. So the flock has increased. The Lord has blessed. Now, where shall I provide for my own household? Again, this kind of concern for doing what's right here for, for the church. Jacob says... I don't want anything. This sounds a lot like, you know, the Abe offering money for Sarah's burial plot and so on. I'm not, I'm not offering, don't, don't give me anything, but this is what will, will happen. It's interesting that Jacob runs the terms here. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Again, this, the emphasis on the flock. This is a very pastoral section. Let me pass through your flock all of it today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, they'll be my wages. Now, this is a fascinating thing. Now, how many sheep are speckled and spotted? Not very many. And if they are, how precious are they? Um, You want that wool coat to have a bunch of, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, do you want it to have a bunch of, of marks throughout and so on? And same thing with this. The the goats mostly are dark, but spotted and speckled, not very many. And how, you know, so he's going after the minority and he's going on after the less than desirable. Okay. And he says, my honesty will answer for me when you come to look in my wages Everyone that's not speckled and spotted is found with me shall be counted stolen. So Laban's okay with this. Notice what happens. That day Laban removes the male goats that were striped and spotted. So these are the ones that, that Jacob said, I'll take. And all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it. This is a fascinating play on words. We're going to get that. Lavan, Laban, Lavan means white. His name is white. 
So in some ways, this is like what kind of Laban, what kind of Lavan, what kind of whiteness are you after? Are you after the whiteness that just looks good in the eyes of the world? Or are you after a whiteness that the world might not look at something? I mean, it's it's not purely white in the eyes of the world, right? It's just kind of, it's speckled, it's spotted. It's interesting. Lavan takes all those and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. He set a distance, three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Je- I mean, the three day journey sounds like, again, Genesis, um, what, Abraham and Isaac on the third day. Why we have this third day stuff when it comes to shepherding. Three day journey and uh, Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So even the ones that Jacob wanted were taken and, and kept at a, law, at, at a long distance. So Jacob has the rest of the of the flock. How the big question, how are you going to get speckled and spotted? That's what you wanted. When you're left with only the the purely white or the purely dark in the case of the of the goats, how can you get speckled again? I mean it's I mean it's like I I just don't see how this is physically possible. Okay? Jacob then has this, I mean, this is kind of an obscure thing here, and it's it's strange, but let's let's do our best here. Jacob took sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled Lavan, Laban. He peeled Laban streaks in them, exposing the Laban of the sticks, the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that had been peeled in front of the flocks in the watering places where they come to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. So the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. Now, this is a fact, like, just looking at the sticks, seeing the white in the stick, is that enough to bring forth this speckled, spotted, the kind of stuff that Jacob is after? Hold that question. We'll return to that question in a minute. But apparently, I mean, look what happens. Jacob gets these kinds of, of... the flock here. He separates the lambs, sets the faces of the flocks toward the stripes, all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart, did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger were breeding, he would put the sticks in there so that they would breed when those sticks are up. But the feebler, the weaker, he wouldn't lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And he increased greatly, had large flocks, female, male servants, camels, and donkeys. I love this. This is very fascinating. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I think it's intentionally weird. (laughs) I think it gets us thinking about um, not just the the ability of these sticks, but the ability of God. It's like the mandrakes. I promised I'd return to those earlier. Give me those mandrakes. Well, it's not ultimately the mandrakes that give the fertility. It's God. He's the Lord of the womb. He opens and closes that womb. Rachel, Leah, and so on. It's not about the sticks. It's about the fat. Now, the, Jacob uses those sticks, but it's the Lord ultimately that gives the success, that gives the growth, that gives the, the, the fertility. And if he chooses to work through this maneuvering of Jacob with the sticks, then so be it. It's Miraculous all the same. And I love the contrast. Laban, Lavan, white. 
in the eyes of the world, what you want the white. I mean, it's think of the spotless, blameless lamb and the sacrifices calling for the blameless animal, not a single blemish. Outwardly, what Jacob is after is a flock that looks kind of like an outcast flock, like a foolish flock, like a weak flock in the eyes of the world. The eyes that look at outward appearances, they look at small numbers in the pews, they look at struggling finances, they look at weakness. They look at the cross and think foolishness or a stumbling block. That's the kind of flock that Jacob is after. And yet Jacob has the stronger flock. Laban gets the flock that looks pristine. It's all pure and white outwardly. But inwardly, they're weak. Inwardly, they're what ravenous wolves, you might say, in some cases. Inwardly, at the heart, they're weak. They're the ones that are truly and thoroughly inferior. And that is exactly the flock of the Christian church. That is exactly the church of all times and places in the eyes of the world. This is foolish and stumbling. And this is weakness unfavorableness, no beauty that we should desire them, no beauty that we should desire him. And yet they increase and they have the strength, the power that's made perfect in weakness, the strength that comes in Christ crucified, the source of our new life and power and glory. It's a beautiful chapter. It's kind of odd, and yet at the same time, so pastoral for the flock of Christ Church of all times and places. Chapter 30, tune in next time. We'll tackle, wait for it, chapter 31. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian German, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. 